being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 46 imperial japan part 16 cursors to the japanese communist party and katayama sen versus masahiko amakasu today i'm recording from irkutsk so the last two weeks we talked about the great waltz the most dangerous game of all statecraft, particularly between Russia and then the Soviet Union and Japan, right? Let's get more grounded and talk about specific cultural cross-pollination between these two countries. It definitely went both ways, but of course we're focused on Japan. So from 1868 on, Japan of course was much more engaged with the rest of the world than before. This was due to the Meiji Restoration, which, good lord, would that be like such an interesting series of episodes? I would not probably even be the person who could do that the best, but I would listen to it, right? The short way of explaining the Meiji Restoration, which we've referenced a handful of times, was that it was Japan beginning to industrialize, to open up to the West, to interact with Western and European culture, and they made various widespread social reforms. Several countries were particularly involved, like Great Britain, the United States, the Dutch, the Portuguese, also Russia. I'm sure I'm leaving a couple others out. Now, the interesting thing is that the Japanese public loved Russia's critiques of modernity in particular. Modernity, as constituted by, like, Western culture, was relatively new to Japan, right? And so it was, like, a new and foreign thing. And so they were very interested in, like, what the Russians had to say about it. And they had a huge appetite for Russian literature. We're talking Dostoevsky, of course. He was very big. Also, Tolstoy, Gogol, Chekhov... Turgenev. Interestingly, also Lev Shestov, which gave me a little bit of a blast from the past. When I was a young, terribly serious adolescent, I was extremely into Lev Shestov, of all things, because I loved existentialism, but being, I guess, always on my bullshit and always something of a hipster, I couldn't just be into, like, Sartre or, like, Camus or whatever. So I got way into Kierkegaard and then also into Shestov. (laughs) There I was, reading Shestov's Athens and Jerusalem at, like, age 16, when I should have been having much more fun. Though I was having fun, so don't cry for me, dear listeners. I'm having fun now, by the way. So the Japanese public's enthusiasm for Russia and its culture never really affected Japan's foreign policy in any meaningful way. It is funny because, like I said, I'm recording these episodes as, I guess, World War III hopefully doesn't break out between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, NATO, right? And Americans have this weird provincial idea that, like, if a country's government does something bad, then, like, 
I don't know. Like, I recall the Freedom Fries bullshit with France. There's a really horrible anti-Russian wave going through the culture right now. It's just interesting because, like, the public of any country doesn't really have as much influence on, like, the foreign policy as people maybe think it does. I don't know. Anyway, that was certainly true for Japan and Russia a hundred years ago, right? <laughs> but I will say this. The Japanese public's enthusiasm for Russia and Russian culture did shift Japan's domestic politics in some pretty big ways. For example, one of the main translators of Russian literature, named Shimei Futabetai, he wrote about Japan's poor and homeless. He also went on to write one of Japan's very first modernist novels, The Drifting Cloud. Naturally, it wasn't just cultural influence coming over, but also Russia's political ideas. Russian populism made a big influence on Japanese populism. There was the Freedom and People's Rights Movement of 1874 to 1884, which was very, very influenced by the Narodniks, which was the Russian movement of agrarian socialism. Super related, the Japanese government watched as this Russian populist movement slid into political terrorism, particularly with the Narodnya Volya. And the Japanese government realized that the same thing could very easily happen in Japan. And in a lot of ways, conditions were very similar, in the sense that both Japan and Russia were autocratic regimes that largely refused to reform society. Mind you, we're talking about, like, the turn of the century, around, like, the 1900s here, right? I know we're hopping all over the timeline, but <laughs> I'm sorry. Also, another big similarity is that Japanese populists thought that their royal family could help and help reform society. The Narodniks, a lot of them thought that the Tsar could help reform Russia. And a lot of the Japanese populace thought that Emperor Meiji could do that too. And like, it's not completely naive, but it's also not necessarily true. But that basic attitude of like Russian and Japanese populism, totally shared in both countries. But enough about nebulous, squishy populism. Let's talk about the development of Japanese socialism, both utopian and scientific. Though there are undoubtedly other ingredients in the mix, socialism first came to Japan through Christianity. The first Japanese socialists, almost all of them, were Christians. In 1901, the first socialist party in Japan was formed out of the Tokyo Unitarian Church. Five of the six of the first members were all Japanese Christians. Christianity would heavily influence the early Japanese socialist movement. This first party, they would call themselves the Shakai Minshuto, 
or the Social Democratic Party. They were banned by the government within hours of forming. Now, I am drawing from a couple books which I will cite later on in the episode, but one of the books that I'm using is this great book called The Japanese Communist Movement 1920-1966, written by Robert Scalapino, published by UC Berkeley, in collaboration with the RAND Corporation and the U.S. Air Force. Don't worry, I'm not taking it as the gospel truth. I am cross-checking everything, but this book highlights four major currents that formed Japanese socialism. And it's not going to be a huge surprise, it's largely the same ingredients that formed socialism in other countries, but here's the recipe. First, French revolutionary thought. Second, German social democracy. Third, Christian humanism. And fourth, Japanese traditional thought with its particularly communal bent. Their words, not mine. Now, if you'll recall, I mentioned that five of the six first Japanese socialists were Christian and one wasn't. Were you curious as to who the sixth guy was? I will tell you. His name was Shusui Kotoku, and he had interacted with the industrial workers of the world when he had gone and spent time in the United States. Now, this same group of people, these Christian socialists, they went on and tried to set up another different party in 1906. This, too, was banned immediately. (laughs) They were not particularly unified. For example, at a party conference in 1907, they voted down the concept of direct action and also voted against parliamentarism. Which, like, what are you supposed to do if you choose as a party to not engage in parliamentarism or direct action? Like, what are you left with? The answer is nothing, and then naturally they accomplished nothing. Fits and starts, you could say, to the Japanese left. One of the reasons why the Japanese left moved quickly from the aforementioned vague populism and, like, Christian socialism into something closer to, like, more strict and almost dogmatic socialism was because of the radicalizing effects of the Russo-Japanese War. Additionally, a major factor helping to radicalize the nascent Japanese left was the newspaper, the Haimin Shimbun, the Commoner's News. I believe I mentioned it in episode 34. They published Tolstoy's essays on pacifism. They were the first to publish Bakunin, Plakhanov, and Lenin. They also published the Communist Manifesto in 1905. The publishing of the Communist Manifesto was the pretext for the government shutting them down in the same year, 1905. Also, there was the Russo-Japanese War on, right? Also, interestingly, in this period, although Japanese radicals could not get any real traction going yet, they, speaking on the international stage, Japanese 
radicals were often the key intermediaries as couriers and messengers between the various international revolutionary exiles. This provided important contacts and training for the Japanese radicals later on. Now, you remember the high treason case of 1910? We talked about it in episode 34 with Gudo Uchiyama, the Zen Buddhist priest who was like kind of an anarchist, right? Well, this same Shusui Kotoku, who was one of the first party members, the the non-Christian one, right? He was arrested in the high treason case and executed. This drove the Japanese socialist and anarchist movement, which at that time was not terribly distinct or separate. It drove the Japanese left heavily underground, and the entire movement at this time was largely anarcho-syndicalist in nature. This also parallels a lot of other countries where the radicals of many countries were largely anarcho-syndicalist at this time. The Japanese socialist movement was also peripheral to the intellectual mainstream of Japan well into the 1920s. And this was unusual and different than other countries, where often the intellectual mainstream was radical to one degree or another. This was simply not the case in Japan. Now, another important early figure was Sen Katayama. He traveled to the United States, where he became a Christian and a socialist. Katayama attended a variety of U.S. universities. He attended Maryville College in Tennessee, Grinnell College in Iowa, and that's where he graduated in 1892. He also attended Andover Theological Seminary, as well as Yale Divinity School. Katayama returned to Japan and edited various union magazines. He was one of the founding members of that first Japanese Socialist Party. He attended the Second International Socialist Congress in Amsterdam. When he was there, he got to shake hands with the Russian delegate, Georgi Plekhanov, which was a big deal because the Russo-Japanese War was happening at that time. So, in the Second International, seeing the Russian delegate and a Japanese delegate shaking hands, why, it's a perfect symbol of international solidarity between workers, right? Katayama tried to engage in some different business ventures in the United States. I think he tried to be like a rice farmer, but I think his farm failed. And I think he also tried to open a restaurant, but that failed too. <laughs> he tried to open a Japanese restaurant in like Texas in like the 1910s or something. So like probably not the best time for a Japanese restaurant. So Katayama went back to Japan. There were some famous Tokyo streetcar strikes in 1912. Katayama was arrested for his involvement in that. He was also very angered by his treatment in prison during this period, and when he was released, he found himself under constant, heavy police surveillance. 
So he moved back to the United States. The land of opportunity, right? Wasn't so hot for him there, being back in the United States. He was stuck living in San Francisco in a dirty, run-down flop house used by day laborers. And, mind you, I'm not, like, trashing day laborers, right? But it's like, they themselves don't want to live like that. It sucks, right? One visitor wrote about the conditions that Karayama was living in at this time. They described seeing him using an orange crate as a table between beds, and it was holding his current reading material, which was Karl Marx's capital, right? Male living spaces, am I right, fellas? The Japanese consulate in California, they treated Karayama like a dangerous public enemy. And Katayama made, like, no progress trying to organize Japanese-American workers in the Bay Area. And I don't mean like he was bad at it. I just mean conditions were not right and he made no progress. Luckily, and probably the only reason why we even know Katayama's story, he found a benefactor in S.J. Rutgers, who was a Dutch Marxist who had a personal fortune. He spent that fortune building up the socialist press in the United States. He also did a bunch of other really interesting things in his life. I would love to do an episode just on Rutgers alone. Now, Rutgers sent Katayama funds to allow him to come to New York City in 1916, which he did. And Katayama was able to meet Leon Trotsky Nikolai Bukharin, and Alexandra Kolontai, among others. Katayama, for a time, became the leading Asian communist in the world. But, of course, the Palmer raids came around, and he had to go underground, and he actually hid in New Jersey for a time, while the feds were looking for him. Once the heat died down and he knew he wouldn't be deported, Katayama lived in New York City. He would work sometimes as a cook, sometimes he would sell popcorn on Coney Island, and his small apartment on West 5th Street, don't ask me, I don't know New York City, his small apartment became a sort of salon for Japanese radicals. And there are all kinds of interesting Japanese expats and Japanese Americans that he interacted with. And like, like, I regret that I don't know most of them, but in the book that I was reading, there are descriptions of some of them, and it sounds like such an interesting scene. Like, for example, there's this Japanese cowboy uh, who just worked out west for a long time. He seemed really interesting. And many of them were brilliant. A lot of them would go on to become very important in their own right like Aiso Kondo, Mosaburo Suzuki, and Sunao Inomata. They were informally known as Katayama's boys. Several of them will come up in you know, future episodes. Still, the Japanese Communist Party did not exist yet. So in 1921, when the Comintern Conference for Asian Nations was scheduled in Irkutsk, Katayama and his boys attended as members of the Asian section for the American Communist Party. Katayama would go on to travel in Mexico. He would also visit Moscow. 
and while visiting there, he was respected as a leader of the Japanese communist movement. He lived on until 1933, and when he passed away, he was buried in the Kremlin Wall Necropolis in Red Square. So, that Comintern Conference for Asian Nations was very important. It was announced in 1921, it was actually held in 1922, and, of course, Katayama and his boys were joined by other Japanese delegates. There were also sizable contingents from China and Korea. The Comintern Conference was oriented around the Korean and Chinese. This fact that it was oriented around the Korean and Chinese was not yet, but would eventually become, a source of conflict in the future. I will discuss this at greater length in the future. Now, the Soviets were not unaware that the Japanese delegates were not exactly doctrinaire Marxist-Leninists at this time. They were dealing with related problems, like across the world. It wasn't just the Asian delegates or the Japanese ones. Half of the Japanese delegates specifically, though, were downright, just outright anarchists or had serious anarcho-syndicalist tendencies. In fact, only two of them were actually strict Marxists in general. And since there wasn't a communist party in Japan, the Soviets at this point were not terribly concerned about the lack of ideological purity at this juncture. Now, many of the Japanese radical socialists at this time were starting to come from circles associated with Waseda University, which was one of the more prestigious universities in Japan. If you'll recall, that's also where the Waseda Revolution had occurred in like 1917. Side note, I gotta do it. I gotta bring up how shitty Wikipedia is at every chance. If you look at the Wikipedia page for Waseda University, you will not find a single reference to the Waseda Revolution or to the pretty, like, frankly, high number of far-left radical movements that have been associated with Waseda. It is interesting and, you know, what can you say, right? Also, interestingly, talking about this period of time, like the 20s, there was a steady flow of radical literature coming into Japan from the Japanese-American community in the United States, like mainly California, right? Now, in terms of the Japanese left, things really started to come to a head in 1922, as it did in many other countries. That is where the important split between anarchists and communists started to occur. And this was, you know, occasioned by anarchists writing about the perceived abuses they were receiving by the Soviet Union. And, like, I'm not trying to minimize it. Like, Bolsheviks were shooting anarchists at this time. Like, mind you, this is like in the context of a civil war, but... It did get pretty acrimonious, and so I don't exactly blame them for speaking up, right? And interestingly, the Japanese left sort of 
was split into two camps, but it was still very nebulous. And there was a period of time where Japanese anarchism might have made much greater progress and like pulled ahead, so to speak. But the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923 occurred, which you know we've talked about it before in episode 38, when Nisho Inoue supposedly predicted it, and in episode 40, when we discussed Park Yol, the Korean anarchist who was imprisoned after the earthquake. Yes, we're talking about it again. So, when the Great Kanto earthquake of 1903 happened, there were pogroms against Koreans, you know, we've talked about. But, this is also interesting. The military police, working with ultra-nationalists, used the chaos of the earthquake and the imposition of martial law to use that chaos in order to shoot at least 10 union organizers in the aftermath. Additionally, a contingent of military police led by a man named Lieutenant Masahiko Amakasu rolled up on Sakai Osugi, who was a Japanese anarchist, as well as his wife, Noe Ito, and their nephew. The police arrested them, right? And from that point on, it is not exactly clear what happened to them, but they were beaten to death. But it appears that they were beaten to death, and then their bodies were thrown into an abandoned well. Or they were strangled in their cells, and then thrown in the well. One of the two. The public found out, and it rightfully provoked widespread anger. This became known as the Amakasu Incident. Amakasu was court-martialed and received 10 years in prison. But when Emperor Hirohito was crowned emperor just three years later, you know, it's customary to do pardons on such events, right? And Hirohito, in his august, you know, wisdom, chose to pardon Amakasu. From there, Amakasu was sent to study in France. And it's interesting, he, when he was in France, he befriended the artist Fujita Suguharu. I'm not really sure what to make of that, it's just interesting. If this is giving you Lieutenant Kali vibes, yes, it is very similar. Though, as we'll see, Amakasu is certainly probably an even bigger villain in some ways. Anyway, we'll get into it. After Amakasu studied in France, he was sent to Mukden, where he worked for, ding ding ding, Kenji Doihara. And... Yes, he did, in fact, work with Yoshiko Kawashima. Amakasu helped run the drug trade. He was also involved in dealing with Emperor Puyi, just like Kawashima was. In fact, we have an interesting story. When Emperor Puyi landed in Port Arthur in November of 1931, Amakasu, I'm not sure what his rank was at that time, he greeted the emperor at the docks and took him to his hotel. While they were, you know, en route, Amakasu told Puyi about how he killed Osugi and his family. 
those anarchists, right? He told Puyi how he killed them because they were enemies of the emperor. Then Amakasu told Puyi that he would kill him if he proved to be an enemy to Emperor Hirohito. You know, just casually threatening the life of a monarch. <laughs> I mean, respect for that, but not, obviously, any of his other actions. A little later on, Masahiko Amakasu would help organize the police force in Chengchun. The American historian Luis Young described Amakasu as a sadist. Like, we are talking about Klaus Barbie shit. Also, Amakasu was involved in undercover operations against China after the Marco Polo Bridge incident. Like, similar to what Doihara and Kawashima were doing, right? Amakasu had powerful backers. He had the direct support of Nobusuke Kishi, which, if you don't know who Kishi is, get ready to hear a whole lot about Kishi. Long story short, he was Prime Minister of Japan in the post-war era. In this period of time, Kishi was, I think, maybe governor of Manchukuo? Let me double check that. No, that's right, he was economic manager. He was known as the monster of the Showa era. He was a big deal in the Manchukuo puppet state, right? During this period of time, and under Kishi's guidance, Amakasu was ultimately promoted to the rank of general. Amakasu was also named head of the Manchukuo Film Association. The Manchukuo Film Association obviously made propaganda films for the Kwantung Army in order to boost support for the Manchukuo regime. Amakasu even traveled to Germany, Nazi Germany, to obtain state-of-the-art cameras and equipment. Side note, I cannot fail but think about how Hitler loved to watch snuff films of executions of his political enemies, though I think that was a little bit later on. I can't confirm that Amakasu was into that kind of thing, too, but we know that he was a sadist, he was involved in the drug trade and in death squads, so... I don't think that letting your imagination run wild in this case would be super out of bounds, right? So in 1940, Amakasu produced a very particular film called China Nights. I think it does have other titles. Yeah, I think another title is Shanghai Nights. But this film produced in Manchukuo, was the biggest film in Japan for that year of 1940. It starred Yoshiko Yamaguchi, who, if you will recall, she came up in episode 43. She was friends with Yoshiko Kawashima. Yamaguchi, of course, is just an actress, but Kawashima sort of took her under her wing and was like, teaching her the ropes, the ropes, I guess, being a woman in such a horrible, decadent society or something, I don't know. It was Yamaguchi who recalled the charming scene of seeing Yoshiko Kawashima shooting up with heroin while they were hanging out. Now, Yamaguchi, she was born to Japanese parents, 
but she grew up in China. She was fluent in Mandarin. She had several stage names, right? But she was called by some the Judy Garland of Japan. And no, like, I'm not being chauvinist. Like, Japanese people would sometimes say that, right? Anyway, Yamaguchi starred in this movie, China Nights, 1940. Allow me to read you the premise to this film. The film told the story of a Chinese woman, Kei Ron, whose parents had been killed in the war by a Japanese bombing raid, and as a result, she was violently anti-Japanese. A handsome and caring young Japanese naval officer, Tetsuo Hase, falls in love with her, but she resists his advances until he violently slaps her in the face, despite her tears and begging him to stop, and after which she declares her love for him. After being slapped into declaring her love, she apologizes for her anti-Japanese statements, and in a true pan-Asian union, the two are married and lived happily ever after. Seriously, like, it's one of the worst things I've ever heard. The film continues to be very controversial in China, rightfully so in my opinion. Would you like to hear a Japanese historian's explanation on why this is actually not offensive? Here is Dr. Eri Hota, born and raised in Tokyo, who received her bachelor's in history from Princeton University and her master's and doctorate degrees in international relations from the University of Oxford. She's here to explain the subtle nuances that are being lost on, you know, people such as I. So, and I quote, In Japan, as part of a ploy to infantize the population, the emperor was always portrayed as a hermaphrodite figure, being both the mother and father of the nation at the same time, with his-her loving subjects as perpetual children unable to think very much for themselves, thus requiring the emperor, as the parent of the nation, to do all the necessary thinking for his-or-her loving subjects. At the same time, the emperor, as a god, had such awesome responsibilities to deal with that he had to delegate some of his power to mere humans so that he could focus on more important matters. In both the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy, officers routinely slapped the faces of men under their command when giving orders, which was portrayed not as an exercise in petty humiliation, but as an act of love, with His Imperial Majesty's officers acting as the surrogates for the Emperor who had to discipline his children, by having their faces slapped all the time. The scene where the Japanese hero slaps the face of the Chinese woman until she declares her love for him was seen in Japan as a romantic gesture, as a sign that he cared for her, just as in the same way officers of the Imperial Army and Navy showed the Emperor's love for his subjects serving in his Army and Navy by slapping their faces all the time. <laughs> Which, like, <laughs> first of all, I'm sorry. That's insane. Widespread corporal punishment in the military is neither good, nor is it, like, a good reason. Like, none of this is valid. I'm sorry. Like, this is completely insane. And it goes without saying that, like, Dr. Hota is saying that the Chinese simply don't understand 
the context. When I would argue that it is probably the Japanese audiences who don't understand how incredibly rapey, you know, the Japanese military was in China, right? Or maybe they do and they don't care. Take your pick. But the distinguished Dr. Hota also chose to write in a different part of one of the books which I was reading. She wrote, and I quote, Captain Amakasu Masahiko, the alleged instigator of the 1923 assassination of the anarchist Osugi Sakai and his associates, unquote. And that's part of like a whole paragraph, right? But like, call me crazy. I'm just an amateur historian. I'm just a podcaster, right? I don't have a doctorate or anything. But are you really an alleged instigator if you confessed and were found guilty in a court of law, right? Is that alleged? Do you say alleged if if you were found convicted? Like, fuck, man, come on. Also, the word assassination makes it sound like there's a sporting chance. You know what I'm saying? Like, for instance, like, I think assassinations are generally cowardly, right? I'm not trying to be Mr. Morality here, but like, there's a, almost a level playing field when you look at like John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln. Like, Booth could have had his ass kicked. Like, Lee Harvey Oswald could have been shot by a cop or something. There's a sporting chance implied with assassination. But where's the sporting chance in arresting and strangling to death a man, his wife, and their nephew, like a child, a six-year-old child? They either beat to death or strangled a child and threw their bodies down. Oh, well. Does that sound like an assassination to you, or does that sound like cold-blooded murder and alleged like there's absolutely no fucking doubt in anyone's minds whether (laughs) Amakasu did it he told Emperor Puyi he did it this is fucking disgraceful Dr. Hota (laughs) is a piece of shit I'm sorry some historians they just don't care they will literally I'm sorry like literally a disgrace to the profession. I'm sorry. But this is this is what happens when some Japanese historians try to engage in talking about Japanese history. I'm sorry. It's absolutely fucking shameful. Anyway, on a happier note, if you're wondering what happened to Masahiko Amakasu, as the Soviet tanks rolled into Manchuria, he bit down on a potassium cyanide pill. I'm told that that provokes symptoms very similar to a heart attack, so at least there's an element of suffering there. That's pretty cool. The actress, Yoshiko Yamaguchi, of the film China Nights, she was captured by the Chinese. Mind you, this is the, I think at this point, the nationalist Chinese and she was about to be executed, quite similar to Yoshiko Kawashima, in fact, but Yamaguchi was able to pull the trick that Kawashima tried 
she said that she was actually Japanese, except in this case it was actually true. So she managed to be released. She went to Japan and had a long career. I mean, I am an enthusiast of Japanese cinema, but I don't know a lot of the, like, non-criterion stuff. I'll be, you know, honest. She did star in a film directed by Akira Kurosawa, film Scandal, which came out in 1950. And I will say this, to her credit, Yamaguchi expressed guilt for starring in Japanese propaganda films. She was also one of the first prominent Japanese citizens to acknowledge Japanese war crimes in general. She also advocated paying reparations to comfort women, which that's great. Like, I think that's cool. Also pretty cool, she advocated and argued for the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Somewhat less cool, she ran and was elected to the House of Councillors as a member of the Liberal Democratic Party. So, you know, a life of contrasts, I guess you could say. Anyway, I apologize for the multiple rabbit holes. Sometimes these stories capture me and I have to see them through to the end. But, as I was saying, Japanese anarchism might have gone further, but with the murder of the most influential Japanese anarchist, and then the failure of anarchism in Italy, and the global ascendance of Marxism-Leninism on the, you know, international left, <laughs> with Marxism-Leninism being on a real winning streak at the time, the Japanese left began to align more and more with communism. To quote the Scalapino book, in an era when the radical intellectual element in Japan was committed to revolution, communism rapidly succeeded anarchism as the science of successful revolution. Unquote. Also, just an observation that both of the books that I was reading make, if the first generation of Japanese radicals got into socialism through Christianity, and to a much lesser extent anarcho-syndicalism, the second generation was getting into radicalism directly through Marx's writings, to a lesser extent Lenin's. It's in this context, in 1919, when one of Katayama's boys, Aiso Kondo, left for San Francisco. He had two goals in mind. He wanted to cement closer ties between the Japanese-American and Japanese radicals, and he wanted to found the Japanese Communist Party. In the U.S., Kondo made contact with Comintern agents who gave him funds to go back and start the party in Japan. When Kondo got back to Japan with Comintern funds, he, I think, went to a brothel and was almost immediately arrested, caught. He confessed. He gave up his whole network of would-be members of the as-yet non-existent Japanese Communist Party. All of them were arrested. <laughs> the few Tokyo radicals who were not rounded up yet, they did not want to work with Kondo anymore, which made sense. So Kondo went and tried to start a party with Waseda University students. It is not clear to me whether Kondo was an agent provocateur, 
and forgive me, I'm not trying to snitch jacket anyone, like, please. But there were many agent provocateurs at this time. And his behavior sort of strikes you as that, given that he flipped, gave up a whole network, and then tried to keep doing it. And then, from here on out, he sort of drops out of the story. Weird behavior, right? Anyway, other Japanese radicals had also visited Moscow. They started drawing up a program and manifesto. They drew up their central theses on July 15th, 1922. That is the official date for the founding of the Japanese Communist Party. In 1923, the police raided the founders and got a list of the party members. <laughs> they arrested the entire Japanese Communist Party, as well as a number of union leaders and professors. Particularly of note was the arrest of Manabu Sano, a relative of Shinpei Goto. If you'll recall, he was head of the pro-Russian faction in Japan. Manabu Sano had the potential to be a real leader for the Japanese Communist Party. But that was snuffed out. We will pick up on this trail next episode. Four sources today. I have a couple excellent books. First and foremost, I used Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan and Soviet Communism by Tatiana Linkoeva. I also used the book Japanese Communist Party 1920-1966 by Robert Scalapino. Additionally, I used the book Pan-Asianism and Japan's War 1931-1945 by the distinguished Dr. Eri Hota, though I would literally throw it in the garbage if I had a physical copy. <laughs> I thought about trying to harass her on Twitter, but... No. She will get her reward in the afterlife, I hope. Do not harass her on Twitter, dear listeners. I will say this too. I do not speak Japanese. I don't think I'm fooling anyone with my pronunciations, but I will say this. I am relying on English-speaking scholarship. Japan has a massive body of work and a lot of scholarship on the Japanese left. It is quite neglected in English language, like academia. This places certain limitations on me, but that's life, right? What are you going to do? All I'm saying is I know this. Also, for context here, I also use the book Gold Warriors by the Seagraves, the Yoshiko Kawashima book that I brought up in prior episodes, Zen Terror, all of the works by Brian Dyson, Victoria, and so on and so on. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Check out my Patreon, where for just $5 a month, you can get double the episodes. Listen, I'm just a simple man. I have a product. I'm offering to sell it. I put a lot of work into it. If you're listening to this and you enjoy it, I know you'll like that. 
try subscribing. Either way, I need to be on my way to Harbin, China. See you next week, and God bless.